Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Steve Jeffrey called A Fine-Tuned World, from the series Science and Christianity. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the full series, now available on Canon Plus. Good morning. Well, um, Pastor Shade has been kind enough to help me with uh, some running translations from American English uh, into English English and vice versa. <laughs> and so I've been compiling my own little phrase book to help me um, to negotiate life in the United States. So um, what I discovered that in, um, in the whole area of hospitality, when an American says, do you want to get something to eat? What they mean is, it's been at least two hours since your last 12-ounce steak. <laughs> you must be ready for another one. Um, politics has been another area where I've had to make something of a transition. So, for example, when an American says, it's great living here, it's a very conservative state. What they mean is, around here the kids learn to shoot before they can crawl. <laughs> On the other hand, when someone says, it's tough at times living here in this rather progressive county, what they mean is, last week, when I was driving to work in my fully armed tank, the police pulled me over. <laughs> and travelling. Uh, travelling is another area where I've had to make some adjustments, because when somebody says, it's just a short journey, we'll rent you a car and you can drive there easily, what they mean is, it's 600 miles, and there's nothing but wheat fields, but don't worry, there are only two bends in the road. <laughs> so, I'm getting the hang of it, I hope you're getting the hang of me. Uh, would you turn with me, please, uh, in your little blue uh, books to page six, uh, where we're going to continue our exploration of this wonderful uh, world that God has made. I love that line in the hymn that we um, just sang. Praise to the Lord, who with marvelous wisdom hath made thee. Praise to the Lord, who with marvelous wisdom hath made thee. Let me tell you, we scarcely have the faintest idea of the wisdom that God has shown in making the world in which we live. And in this next session, I want to try and give us a glimpse of that by talking about this fine-tuned world in which we live. I want to talk about science and Christianity and the origin of the universe. Let me begin with that uh, grey shaded box at the top of the page, which, as I said yesterday, this gives us a summary first of what I want to say in the next an uh, hour or so, 45 minutes perhaps, uh, and then uh, in bold at the bottom of the box, the cash value of what I want to say for the relationship between the Christian faith and the scientific enterprise. Materialism, and you remember what materialism is? Materialism is the doctrine that says that matter, or perhaps matter and energy, but matter is all that there is. There's nothing else apart from this stuff around us. Nothing else exists. Materialism can't explain why the physical world should be intelligible to the human mind. Indeed, if the values of the physical constants that describe the behavior of our universe differed even slightly from their present values, the universe would be completely uninhabitable and might not even exist at all. The universe appears to have been deliberately designed to support life which is very difficult to explain in the absence of a cosmic designer. 
which means that the Christian doctrine of creation, unlike atheistic materialism, can explain why the universe is intelligible to us and how it came to exist in the first place. That's what I want to talk about for the next three quarters of an hour or so. And I want to begin uh, by playing you something. Uh, how do I get this out? Oh, there we go. I'm going to play something on the guitar. Uh, this is very important. I bid you all please listen very carefully. I should tell you I'm a pianist, so I'm not sure <laughs> which way up to hold this thing. Um, but I want you to listen carefully to what I want to play. Okay? This is a chord of G. It'll take me a while. Ready? Thank you very much. <laughs> please, please hold your applause. Thank you. How about that? Does that sound all right? Right. Now, wait there a second. Because what I want to do is to detune the strings a little bit. That sounded nice because you've got six pegs up here, one, two, three, four, five, six, and they control the tension in each of these strings. And each of them has been tuned by somebody else, I hasten to add, to make them the right tension with relationship to each other. But if I just detune them slightly, that's this one like that, and that one like that, and let's just fiddle with this one over here, and maybe that one as well. I'll play the same chord again, and I'll, you tell me what you think. It's kind of there. <laughs> Let me try again. I'm just going to randomly try and find something that sounds good. Um, there's a bat up there and that like this. And, come on, I'm about to get it right. If I keep trying, I'm sure it'll end up okay. Um, <laughs> that wasn't so good. This one definitely needs to go that way. Um, maybe that one. Now, it's better. Now, here's the problem. If I spend the next 45 minutes randomly turning these dials to try and get the tension right in the strings, how long do you think I'm going to have to try that for before the chord sounds nice again? I suspect that if I keep randomly shifting the tension in those strings, the chance of me getting it right by accident is going to decrease as time goes on. Every time I fiddle with the strings, I'm more likely to go away from a guitar being in tune than to get it back in tune again. What that illustrates is the very simple principle that there are many, many, many more ways of being wrong than being right. There are many more ways for a guitar to be out of tune than to be in tune. There's really only one way or one very narrow range of ways for a guitar to be in tune, and every other way is out of tune. If you think of the, the range of tunings of the springs, uh, the strings, it's like a giant dartboard, like the size of this room. The range of tensions which will produce an acceptable musical chord is probably a small teacup size in the middle of the room. The chance of hitting that by accident is extremely remote. Now, here's a question. What if the universe was a bit like a guitar. What if the properties of the universe were a little bit like the tension in the guitar strings? Like that. I'm sorry. Okay. Do I need to start again? Oh, dear. You all got that. Did, did you seriously not hear a word I just said? For the last... And you're sitting there... And there she's saying, our oh, English people are always so polite. 
Oh, well. So what if the properties of the universe were a little bit like the tension in those guitar strings? What if the universe then was a little bit like a guitar? And what if, in order to get the universe to work, you had to get the tension in the guitar strings just right? It turns out that that's exactly what the universe is like. The universe is very much like a guitar, in that from a material point of view, the way that the, the universe operates is, so to speak, determined by the relationship between quite a small number of different properties, different forces, different physical constants. And the chance of getting those right randomly is extremely low, which raises a whole set of troubling questions for materialism. And those are the questions that I want us to uh, think about today. The questions are uh, numbered on your, your handouts, page six and seven. The first question is, why should the universe be comprehensible to our minds? Why should its properties be sort of the sort of properties that make it make sense to us in the first place? But then secondly, and perhaps more troublingly, the deeper question, why does the universe actually exist at all? What can explain the fact that the, the, uh, the tuning of the different properties of the universe appears to be exactly right to support its existence and to support life. And if the tuning were even slightly off, it certainly wouldn't support life and it might not even exist at all. And here's the danger, and this raises a, a, a question um, that I was asked yesterday. Um, why don't scientists think of stuff like this? Why don't they ask these questions? And the truth is, um, many uh, scientists are people of integrity and thoughtful people, but they have a job to do. You know, their job is to get on with the particular field of research that they're working in for which they're funded. And they don't have a great deal of time to sort of step back and ask the more basic philosophical questions. Perhaps they're not encouraged to do so by the kind of training that they've had, which might tend to be very specialized, almost vocational, really. But it's a little bit like um, many of us with our cars. I mean, many of us get into our cars and drive 400 miles across the United States and don't check the oil before we set off. You're supposed to do that. You know? it's, um, in other words, we can, we can use the tools we've been given without taking the trouble to look under the hood and think, how does this thing work anyway? Is it going to work? Why should it work in the way it does? So I want you to imagine that you're a materialist for a moment. Imagine that you're a materialist. You believe, therefore, that all that exists is matter and energy, and you think that everything can be explained on the basis of how those different, the different things around us interact with each other. And I want you to try and answer these questions. Why is the universe comprehensible? Why does it exist at all? Just let me remind you what you believe. If you're a materialist, you probably believe that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, that it began with a, a huge explosion which didn't just create matter, but created the very space, the fabric of space and time in which we now exist which is normally called the Big Bang. You believe that stars and galaxies formed spontaneously under gravitational attraction and that uh, heavier elements like silicon and iron and carbon were formed within stars from smaller, lighter uh, atoms and uh, elements like helium and hydrogen. And you believe that the stars eventually exploded and all the heavier elements and stuff that they created were sort of scattered 
around the place and that those heavier elements then subsequently coalesced under gravity again and they started to form not just new stars but planets, planetary systems as well with the heavier particles like um, uh, silicon and uh, iron and so on and stuff that the world is made of, that the Earth is made of, kind of coalescing together and forming planets and planetary systems and moons and so on. Now, I know you, you might not believe that, what I'm asking you to do is an exercise in what you might call presuppositional apologetics. That is to say, try and imagine you're in somebody else's shoes and see whether their worldview works. See, whether, see how you would deal with the questions that they have to answer. And if you find you can't deal with them, you might then conclude that there's something wrong with the worldview itself. So it's a little bit like uh, an experiment I heard about um, recently where an anthropologist, a young woman, it, she, she did this experiment uh, a few decades ago. She was in her mid to late 20s, I think, and she wanted to know what it would be like to be old. So she, she spent, I think, about a year, most days, dressing up and uh, using kind of sp uh, splints to make her legs stiff and uh, wearing gloves and binding tape around her fingers to make her fingers stiff. And she put makeup on, like really heavy kind of costume makeup to make herself look old. And she would go and sit in the street like an old poor woman. Or she would dress up like a very wealthy woman, a very wealthy, uh, in, in England we would say, sort of member of the aristocracy. And she would go shopping in expensive stores. And she would see how people treated her. It's almost like you're trying to live in somebody else's shoes to see what it's like. I'm inviting you to dress up as a materialist. It's okay, they look quite cool sometimes. Um, and to imagine what it's like to live in that world and to see what problems you would have explaining the world that you're trying to investigate. Let's try and tackle this first question. Why should the universe be comprehensible to our minds? This is widely and increasingly recognized as a bit of a puzzle by theoretical physicists. Really, there are a couple of interrelated questions here. The first one is... Uh, why is the universe ma mathematically intelligible? Why is it that you can do what Galileo started to do in the 17th century and describe the behavior of physical things with really very simple equations, simple maths? It gets complicated a bit later, but fairly straightforward and simple equations. Why do those equations provide such a compelling and accurate description of the way? The world works. Um, you may not know, uh, uh, quantum mechanics um, is the most prodigiously accurate theory. It's, uh, the, the, the agreement between uh, experiment and theory in quantum mechanics is so accurate, but the equations are really, they're not all that terribly complicated. And it's a puzzle. Why should it be that such an apparently complicated and multifaceted world seems to behave in a way that we are able to describe using really quite simple mathematical tools. Eugene Wigner, who is a, a physicist, uh, put it like this. The enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. And there is no rational explanation for it. And he said, very interestingly, he said, it's an article of faith. And we could read too much into that. Um, you wouldn't want to load too heavily his use of the faith word there. But at the same time, he's expressing this sense of what he's uh, an eminent uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist. And he just can't find any reason within his way of looking at the world about, to explain why it all works in the way it does. Albert Einstein uh, 
enigmatically as so often put it like this the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible so that's the first question what why should the universe be mathematically describable in the way that it is related to that why is the universe ordered and predictable this if anything i think is a more troubling question we take for granted that matter appears almost to do what it's told um it it obeys what we call physical laws it seems to be constrained to act in a certain way so to take a very trivial example if you got a, a golf ball and you dropped it from here onto the floor it would obey well almost perfectly newton's theory of gravity a very very accurately uh, general relativistic theory of gravity so it would accelerate towards the earth surface um, and it will be slowed slightly in its acceleration by a slightly more complicated set of equations to do with um, uh, air resistance and turbulence and so on um, but if you did that same experiment 5000 times you'd get the same results for the speed and the acceleration and so on of the golf ball and then here's the weird thing so it's constant across time why i mean the, there is no good philosophical reason to explain why that should be so. And here's then the weird thing. If you go across the solar system to another planet, to another place, and you do the same thing over there, then the same laws will be observed. You might observe a different rate of acceleration because the mass of the planet is different. But the same theories would describe the behavior of this matter in different times and in different places. Why is that? Why should the world not behave in a disordered and chaotic way? The problem for us in asking this question is we take it for, we take it for granted, perhaps because we're Christians or perhaps because we're just so used to it, that ordered is normal. But again, Einstein would want to turn the whole thing on his head. He said, we, we should expect a chaotic world. If we knew nothing else about matter than that it existed, a priori, he says, we should expect a chaotic world which can't be grasped by the mind in any way at all. But in fact, what we observe is that the universe is regular and ordered and predictable. And this is the basis of the scientific method that burgeoned in the 17th century and has accelerated away since then. That you can infer uh, conclusions about the properties of the material world by performing the same experiment again and again and again, because all else being equal, the same experiment will produce the same results because the universe is regular and ordered and predictable and materialism simply cannot explain why that should be so. It just can't. Now, as a Christian theist, you now enter the room and start talking to your materialist friend, you have something that you can say in response to this dilemma, this, this confusion, this unanswerable question. As Robert Boyle said in the 17th century, we should expect, given the sovereignty of God and the faithful of, faithfulness of God, we should expect that the universe will behave in a way which, which reflects his character. So just as God is unchanging in his faithfulness and his goodness and in all of his attributes, so the universe which reflects him and is made in his image ought to be unchanging in its properties across space and time. It was that philosophical uh, conviction which drove science in the 17th century, drove people to have confidence in the scientific methods which they were beginning to be able to deploy. 
And one of the ways in which you see this is by looking elsewhere in the world around the same sort of time. It's fascinating historically just to look at what was happening, not just in Western Europe during the Middle Ages and then during the transition to the, the um, Enlightenment period and the Reformation. We, we've, we've talked a little bit about what was happening in uh, Europe during that time. But let's ask ourselves the question, what was happening elsewhere? What was happening elsewhere in India, in China, in the Islamic world, in Arabia and in North Africa? During the medieval period, science in those places advanced faster than in medieval Europe. By the end of the 15th century, um, Islamic and Chinese and Indian scientists were actually further ahead than their European, especially Western European, contemporaries. And we saw some of the reasons why that might have been. Remember when we looked yesterday at the, uh, some of the problems in medieval Europe um, uh, with ecclesiasticism and monasticism and so on? Uh, in fact, um, if you just stopped the clock at 1450 or something and, and you looked at you know, where are these various participants in the race, you've got Western Europe back here and China and India and the Islamic world have got a 10-meter head start. So here's the question. Why, why did science take off in the way it did in Western Europe and not in the Islamic world? You know, I mentioned yesterday about um, lenses, about how important the, the, the development of precise lenses uh, was for uh, optics so that you could make telescopes and microscopes, and that wasn't really possible in Europe until 14th, 15th, well, 15th or 16th centuries. Do you know in the Islamic world, Alhazen, had a theory of optics back in the year, about the 11th century. He could explain, he understood the laws of refraction, and he could explain why the sun appeared to be flattened at sunset, because it's to do with um, refraction through the, the Earth's atmosphere. They were miles ahead, miles ahead. So why didn't they win? The reason is, the Reformation didn't take hold in India. The Reformation didn't take hold in the Islamic world and in China. So they didn't have the theological convictions about the sovereignty of God, which gave Western European scholars and philosophers and scientists confidence in their scientific method. Many of the experiments that were performed by Galileo um, to do with um, acceleration under gravity, they've been performed before. But Galileo is remembered because he lived in a world in which he had the confidence to trust his senses in part because of the effect of the theological revolution that was the Reformation. In other words, just thinking about this issue, why the universe should be ordered and predictable, if you don't have that conviction, historically, if you didn't have that conviction, the scientific revolution didn't get started, couldn't get started. The proof is that it didn't happen in India and in China until much later. It's the conviction that's driven by Christian theology that allows science to progress. As a materialist, if that was your worldview, you'd be stuck in the same sort of place as those Chinese and Indian and Islamic scholars were. It's a curious thought, isn't it, to think that, um, and you would have spotted this yesterday, that the materialist, atheist scientific community is in effect standing on the shoulders of the theists whose contemporary uh, heirs they despise. It's the borrowed capital of Christian theism, as Van Til would have said. Um, the atheist world has benefited from the theological insights, of, in this case, the Reformation, 
and standing on the shoulders of those giants, sees so far despite despising them. Remarkable, really. It happens in every area of life, in law, doesn't it? In statecraft and politics. Think how your nation's legal system has been shaped by Christian convictions. And now think how those same convictions are despised on, on, uh, in, in the White House, how they're despised in Washington. Remarkable. Why should the universe be comprehensible to our minds? The materialist cannot answer the question. Second, why should the universe exist at all? This is the broader question, the more troubling question. This is the guitar tuning question. Um, if we were twiddling the knobs on a guitar randomly, trying to get it in tune, we would never arrive, or it would take us a long time, to arrive at anything that sounded remotely like how a guitar should sound. But more broadly, the universe is quite similar. The universe is a bit like a guitar, with its, its properties remarkably well-suited for its own existence and for life to form. What I want to do is to go through a bunch of examples uh, to highlight the peculiarly coincidental character of the world that we live in. And I'm going to start with uh, one that's quite simple um, and it doesn't have any maths in it. Um, and then we're going to end with some stuff which is just eye-popping and it's got some maths, but don't be frightened. I'll, I'll try and give you a feel for what the maths means as we're going along. But let's start with a simple question. Um, uh, you're allowed to answer this, okay? What happens when you drop ice cubes in water? Hands up. You're allowed to answer. What happens when you... They float. Well done. I was fearing that somebody would say they melt, which of course they do. <laughs> they float. So here's what happens. Um, uh, what, uh, you've got your glass of water here. And that's your glass of water. And here are your ice cubes uh, like that. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Now, why do they float? Does that look all right? Okay. I know too much of it is above the level of the water. Just live with me. Okay. Um, why, why do they float? Do you know? Density. Give us, give us the, the story. When water freezes, what happens to it? It expands. And you know why? It, um, you know, the, the further evidence that it expands is when in the winter your pipes freeze, and what happens to the, pi the pipes? They burst. Right. Okay. So water expands on freezing, but it's the same mass of stuff. So when it becomes ice, the same mass occupies a larger volume, so it's less dense, so it floats. Less dense things float in more dense liquid media. Right. Now, Next question. Anybody ever made any candles? Do you do candle making? Quick show of hands. Yeah? yeah feminine side, right? <laughs> okay. Now, here's an interesting question. So this is water. Okay. There's water. Now, here's your saucepan um, with molten wax in it. What happens when you drop a piece of solid wax into a pan of molten liquid wax? It sinks. Have you ever noticed that? Has anybody has ever noticed that difference? Come on, what do they teach you at these schools? Right. <laughs> okay, this is wax. Right. Why? Why does it sink? Right. Right. Very good. Very good. Wax contracts. It shrinks when it freezes, when it goes solid. Water expands when it freezes. Now, which do you think is the most common property of, of materials? If, if, if you had all, all the, um, all listed every single material, every element and compound known to, known to humanity, and you put, you put on one side the things that are like wax, 
that contract when they freeze. And you put on the other side things that are like water that expand when they freeze. How many things do you think will be on the same side as water? It's about six. Like, as in six. Six things, right? Water is almost the golden exception. Almost everything, almost every compound, certainly almost every metal, um, uh, contracts when it freezes. Which means that the solid will sink in water. Uh, sorry, will sink in its liquid. Um, the, the exceptions, water is an exception. One or two semiconductors, gallium and silicon, are an exception. There's one metal, which is an exception. Do you know what it is? It's sometimes called type metal. Because it's used, it's, it's used to make it's antimony. Antimony is used to make old-fashioned typewriters, you know? Because um, you need to have the little really fine details in the uh, thing that strikes the ribbon and pushes the ink through onto the paper. And if you, have, if you use a metal for that part of the, uh, the, the, the type head that contracts when it freezes, then what's going to happen is it's just going to pull back from those, those bits of the, the mold that, where the letter is formed, and you will get an imperfect uh, representation of the letter uh, in the final print head. So what you need, if you're going to make a typewriter, you need an alloy which will expand when it freezes. And it's really hard to get it. You have to use antimony along with iron and a few other bits and pieces. But most things contract when they freeze. Now, this is very important because what is going to happen to the water on Earth if it were different? What is going to happen to the oceans if water contracts on freezing? Let's try and work it out, shall we? Yeah, and we're going to draw an ocean. So here's the, the surface of the ocean. And there's the seabed. Right? So um, what's going to happen if you have, uh, let's suppose you're at the uh, ice caps, so somewhere where it's cold, and so you get a chunk of ice forming here. If uh, water contracted when it froze, what would happen to it? What would happen to that? It would sink. So it's going to go down here. How deep's the ocean at the polar ice caps? You know? Okay, it's about four kilometers at the North Pole. There's no ocean at the South Pole. That was a trick question. You knew that. Right? It goes all the way down here. This is um, four kilometers deep. Right? So now you've got a chunk of ice at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Now what's going to happen to it down there? It'll stay frozen. Why? Because it's cold. Why is it cold? Because it's deeper. And why is it being deeper got anything to do with it being colder? Sunlight. How, deep, how far down does sunlight? Anybody been diving? Been diving? 100 meters? A couple of, I mean, certainly not more than a couple of hundred meters. You don't get any sunlight. So this bit is well, not any. You get like a tiny, 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 imperceptible amount of sunlight. Certainly not enough to melt ice, which is already frozen. So what's going to happen to the oceans if water contracts on freezing? They'd freeze solid from the bottom up. You would have little, well, you'd have some regions of liquid um, uh, water on the surface um, where the uh, ocean was warmer. But the thing is, once the, even in parts of the earth where the sun shines brightly on the surface, there's nowhere on the earth where the sun shines brightly below the surface. So once the ice is formed on the equator, Okay, in the Caribbean, once you have an ice age, say, or once you have ocean currents which carry icebergs underwater, 
many hundreds of miles away from the poles where they have frozen. Once you've got them carried to the deeper waters of even the tropical seas, there they would freeze and there they would stay. So you'd have little shallow, you know, a few tens, a few hundreds of meters deep, perhaps, maybe at some place you might have a bit deeper than that, but regions of liquid water with ice at the bottom of the ocean. It is very hard to imagine how life could exist in a world where the oceans are frozen from the bottom up. Because wherever you have all that kind of stuff, you've got um, cold water always in contact with the, the water above. You've got no natural place for plants to grow off the bottom of the sea. You've got no way to support an ecosystem in the sea. And therefore, you've got very little chance of having that vitally important element of the natural world contributing to the global ecosystem. It's very hard to imagine life on Earth if it weren't for the fact that water is one of this handful of golden exceptions that expands on freezing rather than contracting. In fact, what happens is really neat. When water freezes, let's go back to the North Pole again. Water freezes and becomes ice. It stays put right on the top of the, top of the ocean. So you get a thin sheet of ice forming. And it's interesting. You can see, if you watch some of these David Attenborough films, you can see how the ice forms. It's a fascinating kind of layers of um, uh, process by how, how, how the ice forms. But do you have any idea how thick the ice is? You have a guess. This is like four kilometers. How thick is the ice at the North Pole? It's thickest. Have a guess. Come on. Be brave. You're frightened. 500 meters? 30? Three. Three meters. That's how much ice. It varies, okay? I mean, if you believe what some people say, there'll be no ice there left at all in you know, six months' time or something. Who knows? But, but at its thickest, at its thickest, you get this three meter layer of solid water over a four kilometer deep ocean. And then, Far from sinking to the bottom and freezing from the bottom up, what it actually does, does is to insulate the water underneath. Um, the air temperature at the South Pole up here can reach minus 30 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in old money. Um, what is that? Somebody, uh, minus 30, minus 40. It's colder at the South Pole, but at the North Pole regularly in the winter, it's minus 30. Do you know how cold the water is below the ice? It's about... Two degrees C. It varies. Two, three, four. At the bottom of the ocean, right at the bottom of the ocean, do you know how warm the water is? Four degrees C. Almost uniformly everywhere. Four degrees C. That's to do with the fact that it's, um, that's the point at which water is least dense. It's just slightly above its freezing point as well. And what that means is the oceans can't freeze over. The ecosystem is stabilized in such a way that uh, plant life can live in the oceans, and therefore animal life, fish and so on, can live in the oceans also. It's possible to imagine and to exist on uh, an Earth that supports an ecosystem because water is one of these golden exceptions. Cool, huh? What a coincidence. <laughs> just think, just think how, how the universe could have been different. But that's just a kind of qualitative, hand-waving sort of... Uh, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? But it's, it's not, there's no maths yet. And if you're a scientist, you tend to like mathematical arguments because mathematical arguments allow you to say, 
just how likely or how unlikely things are to happen. So that's kind of hand-waving, isn't it? Interesting. But, you know, it could just be the sort of coincidence that happens. Wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it be interesting if we could get a sense of what's the mathematical probability that these physical constants that describe the behavior of the universe should take the values they do? Think of the properties of the universe as a uh, set of guitar strings. It is increasingly recognized that the precise values of the physical constants that describe the behavior of matter on Earth are precisely tuned, exactly tuned, to allow the universe to exist and to support life. You recall that quotation I read yesterday from Lee Smolin, who says, 12 particles and four forces are all we need to, ex- all we need to know to explain everything in the known world. 12 particles and four forces. Well, actually, he's on to something. It's not all we need to know to explain everything in the world, but it's all we need to know at the bottom line to explain the material world. Okay? Um, the, the, that portion of the world, not, not mind and consciousness and so on, but the material world around us, matter and energy and light and so on, can be described in theory by understanding just four forces gravitational force, electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. If you've never heard of those things, don't worry about it. Okay? Um, now, of course, these things are not understood perfectly, but in principle, those four forces define the behavior of everything, which means that just four numbers, just four constants, four mathematical numbers, which, if you like, they describe the strength of those forces. Just four numbers define the tuning of the universe. Instead of a six-stringed guitar, we've got a four-stringed guitar. And so the question arises, how finely tuned do those four numbers have to be to support life? Let's try and work it out. I'm going to give you a bunch of examples which begin uh, ridiculous and end just eye-popping. Um, but let's begin with this one. Um, the, the way that the standard cosmological argument um, says that heavier elements are formed in stars relies on a reaction between a couple of different uh, nuclei, a couple of different atoms inside, deep inside stars. And that requires a very fine balance between uh, two energy levels in helium and beryllium nuclei. Now, those energy levels in turn are dictated by those four forces. So, but what you need is you need a very, very fine balance between what are called the ground state energy levels of beryllium and helium nuclei. Now, like I said, if, if, the, if the terminology is flying over your head, don't worry, okay? Because we'll get to the numbers and you'll start to see the significance of this. But basically, what it means is if you've got these two constants and you think of them at these two values, which are dictated by those other constants, you think of them as two strings on the guitar. If you get the current values out, by 1%, then the universe will contain no carbon. Okay? Your, your tuning has to be right to within one part in 100. Okay? Otherwise, the universe will contain no carbon. Just tell me, somebody, why that is a problem? Yeah, um, 
you are basically, I don't mean to be insulting, you are a carbon-based sack of water. Uh, we've already seen that you need water to have particular properties. turns out that carbon, the carbon stuff, couldn't exist at all if it weren't for the fact that these two uh, physical parameters are tuned to within one part in 100, 1%. That's pretty tight. Okay, but let's see if we can do any better than that. Let's look at these four forces uh, a bit more, in a bit more detail. The gravitational force, electromagnetic force, strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. And let's ask ourselves, how finely tuned do these have to be in order for the universe to work? Turns out that if the ratio between the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force differed by one part in 10 to the 16, there would be no stars in the universe. One, I'm going to write this down in uh, a kind of mathematical notation, and then I'll tell you what it means. 1 in 10 to the 16. Now, what does 10 to the 16 mean? Anybody know? What is, what is... Exactly. It's 1 with 16 zeros after it. I'm going to be running out of it. Can... No, I'll do it. That's right. Which is um, 1. Okay, count with me. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Right. If you don't get the values of these two forces that accurately tuned with respect to each other, you'll have no carbon, sorry, no stars in the universe. So you've got to picture yourself with your fingers on the dials twiddling the tuning of the guitar. Okay? You have got to get it right to within 100 million millionth of 1%. Your aim has got to be pretty precise at that point, hasn't it? Okay? What are your chances of getting that right? By accident, randomly twiddling the knobs. If you're just going to randomly twiddle the knobs, you've got a one in 100 million millionth of 1% chance of hitting the target. Imagine a dartboard. You're throwing darts randomly. The bullseye is what you've got to hit, and it is 100 million millionth of 1% of the area of the dartboard. What are your chances? Pretty, not quite zero, but pretty. <laughs> right, but now this is, that, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to the next problem for the materialist. turns out that if the ratio between the electromagnetic force constant and the gravitational force constant differed by one part in 10 to the 40, the universe would contain either all large stars or all small stars. Let me write this down, uh, 10 to the 40. I need a volunteer. I'm not going to do this. Um, go on. Could you do this? Could you write one with 40 zeros after it? Do you mind doing that? Is that okay? Come on. Yeah, round of applause, please. Yeah, good. good. Right. Okay. Um, well, while I'm talking, do you mind if just kind of write one and then 40 zeros? You might need two or three lines. Keep, keep track, because if you get one wrong, you know, that's quite serious and don't knock the board over. Um, okay. Now, what, the, the reason for this is, um, I'll tell you this later, because you're concentrating really hard. So, um, uh, this, remember, we're imagining that we're materialists, okay? And, and we believe, therefore, that the universe was formed in this kind of 13.7 billion years ago, or this uh, big, big Bang kind of way. And in order to get the universe that we have today, you need both large stars and small stars. The reason is that you need large stars to generate the, the conditions necessary to create heavier elements, like the stuff that planets are made from. But you need small stars, too, because the large stars burn out too fast. Okay, the large stars are like some huge fireworks. Boom, you know, they burn out in you know, just a few, well, tens of millions of years or something. Um, but the small, that's not long enough for planets to form around them. The sun is actually quite a tiny star. 
um, as stars go. And you need, uh, you sure you've done that? You, do you want to, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, that's brilliant. Thank you. Round, no, don't count them again. That's okay. Okay, round of applause, please. Thank you. Hold well on. Okay, great. Um, now, uh, if you, so what you need is big stars to create these heavier elements and small stars for the heavier elements to kind of coalesce around and form planetary systems and moons and asteroids and then life and stuff like that. Okay, one part in 10 to the 40. How's your aim? <laughs> right, now most people have not the faintest idea what this number means. Okay, it's uh, 100 billion, 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 billionth of 1%. I mean, it's just a, it's even bigger than your national debt. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's, um, so and that's, not, that's not a reason for Barack Obama to stop worrying. It just means that this number is stupendously big. Right? So I'm, I'm going to try and give you a feel for well, what does 1 in 10 to the 40 mean? Here's what you need to do. I need a, a quarter, a coin. Have you got one? Seriously, you'll have it back. I'm a minister, for goodness sake. Come on. <laughs> Honest. Please, have you got, anybody got a coin? It doesn't have to be a quarter. A dime will be fine. A $50 bill will be... <laughs> Can I just have a coin? Is that okay? Anybody got, nobody got any money in this church? All right, don't worry. That's fine. Um, we'll, we'll do it with something else then. Uh, oh, yeah, great. Wonderful. Thank you very much, sir. Hold on. I need to take this. Okay. Thank you. Well, I can have it. <laughs> Wonderful. Right. Now, what, what I need you to imagine is that you're going to cover North America with these. Right? You put them down. We'll begin here. And another one. That's okay. <laughs> so, you see what we're going to do? We're going to cover North America with quarters. And then we're going to get a bunch more quarters, and we're going to cover that first layer. I mean, just think of that for a second. Texas, covered in quarters. You know, remove the cacti, drop it down, we put them down there. You know, you could fit Great Britain three times into Texas. It's a ludicrous amount of space you've got here. Um, <laughs> what, what do you do with it all? Okay, so you cover North America with coins. Once, twice, three times. Keep going, and the pile's sort of half an inch high, where you've got six or seven layers. Keep going, six inches high. Keep going until it's sort of up to here. Keep going, keep going. And you've, you've got a layer of coins, six, eight, ten feet high, over the entire United States of America, plus Canada. And you keep going until the pile reaches the moon. Serious. I'm not joking. And then you do it again with another continent the same size as North America, like Britain. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> uh, you do it again and again and again until you have a billion continent-sized piles of coins stretching to the moon. And then you take this coin and you paint it red. You hide it somewhere. (laughs) You hide it in one of the piles and you blindfold the guy who gave it to me and you challenge him to pick it out. The chances are about 1 in 10 to the 40 that he'll get it right first time. You get the feel for the precision that your aim is going to have to be if you're randomly twiddling knobs to try and create a universe. Thank you very much. But even that is nothing compared to what I'm about to tell you. Well, Paul Davies, um, he's a, uh, I think he's an Australian physicist. He says, I mean, he summarizes the, the story so far. Um, when it comes to this fine-tuning issue by saying this, it seems as though someone has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. Well, there's a rare thought. He's not, he's not a theist. He doesn't believe in God. He's just a physicist who looks at this stuff and thinks this is just not credible to believe that this happened by chance. But I want to give you one more, even more staggering example of the extraordinary improbability of this universe in which we live. Roger Penrose is an Oxford mathematician and physicist. And he says in this connection, 
that the one thing people keep forgetting about is thermodynamics. Now, anybody who's ever taught or studied thermodynamics will readily be able to sympathize with the thought that you might forget thermodynamics. Um, thermodynamics is a branch of physics or chemistry, which is it, it's designed, well, it's, it's the way in which physicists and chemists examine the properties and behavior of large and complex systems. Like the gas in this room, okay? There are many, many, many billions, trillions of molecules of different gases in this room, all in different positions, all moving in different directions at different velocities. So to describe the behavior of the gas in this room, if you had to label each molecule, would just be implausible. You couldn't do it that way. But what you could do is you could generalize about the properties of the whole thing. You could talk about the pressure of the gas. Yeah, Pressure is quite an easy thing to generalize about. The temperature, the volume of the gas. Uh, if you open the windows, the rate of expansion of the gas as the uh, air in here gets heated up and expands out the windows because we're all sitting here and getting rather warm at sort of 5 to 10 in the morning. Okay? These are thermodynamic properties. They're generalizations about the behavior of large and complex systems like temperature, volume, pressure, and so on. So that means that thermodynamics is the perfect scientific tool to consider the behavior of the most complicated system of all, the universe itself. So suppose you use these thermodynamic tools to calculate the temperature, average temperature, um, the rate of expansion, the size and the volume of the known universe. And you use those figures to calculate the total entropy of the universe. Entropy is a kind of hard concept to get our heads around, and I, I'm, I think I'll spare you um, the, the slightly um, abstract definitions of it. But what, the point of calculating, calculating the entropy of a, of a system is it can tell you the likelihood of that state of the system arising by chance. And then you can use um, these thermodynamic tools to work out how the entropy of the universe is changing with time, it turns out that the entropy of any system increases with time. Any closed system, the entropy increases with time. It's, it's basically the same as saying the level of disorder in the system increases with time. And then you just track the clock back 13.7 billion years to work out what the entropy would have to have been at, or let's be fair, just after the Big Bang. Talking about at the Big Bang is a little bit complicated. So let's say we can use these tools to work out what the entropy, the level of order, would have to have been just after the Big Bang. And then we can calculate the probability that that state would have arisen by chance. I'm going to write it down for you. It's one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123. Now, just before you think, what's that about? What it means is, it's the, um, this bit here, uh, this bit there, right, tells you how many zeros, right? So just, just give me 10 seconds, concentrate really hard, okay? This, 10 to the 123, is the number of zeros you need. Not 40 or 50. I mean, if you, this is the number, this is the, the improbability thing for the billion piles of coins stretching to the moon that are the size of North America, right? That's only 40 zeros. 10 to the 123 zeros. So I'd like a volunteer who was to write this down. No, it's already son. You don't want to... Uh, to write this number down, there's, there's no conceivable way that we could ever write this number down. 
because there are only 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. Right? So the 10 to the 80 atoms, uh, here we are, 10 to the 80 atoms. So if you found a way, oh, atoms, so if you found a way of writing a zero on every atom in the universe, you wouldn't come close to even writing down the number on the board that describes the improbability of the universe coming into being spontaneously by chance, according to this thermodynamic analysis. You, if, if you wrote down this number on, with a zero on every atom in the universe, this is what you'd have to do. You'd have to, you'd have to get some machine okay, that could write zeros on atoms. And then you'd have to write a one somewhere, I don't know, the back of your hand. Um, and then write a zero on everything. Actually, we could, we could make it, we could cheat slightly. We could just say, let's let an atom be, correspond to a zero. Okay? So let's not bother to write on them. Let's just say each atom is a zero. And then you'd have the one plus the, the 10 to the 80 zeros. And then you'd have to keep doing that. You'd have to do that again and again. Keep writing that whole number of zeros down, 10 to the 80 zeros down. One time for each of the coins in all those billion piles of coins stretching to the moon. That's how many universes you would need. You'd need 10 to the 40 universes full of atoms with a zero on each atom, and then you would be 0.1% of the way there. You don't need to do that a thousand times. Right. You get the picture, don't you? Materialism itself has started to find the limits of its explanatory power. This is not now theologians coming along, Christians coming along to scientists and trying to point out that their theories are limited. This is scientists running into the baffling incomprehensibility of their own conclusions. It just looks like somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. But then the boot swings around the other way. It makes my metaphors. The boot's on the other foot. Because as Christians... We can say something at this point, which we suddenly realize the significance of. We can glibly stand up in the conversation and say, well, um, we believe in a God who is infinitely wise. So our God would be capable of hitting the target first time. His aim is good enough. And then we just stop ourselves in our tracks as we're, we're walking out of the conversation and perhaps going to our Bible study at church. Where in our Bible study at church, we're going to be talking about the attributes of God. And we're going to be saying that he's infinitely wise. And we're going to be saying it as if it's just like, well, he's infinitely wise, which means he's quite clever. Now, we have scarcely begun to come close to scratching the surface in understanding what it means for God to be infinitely wise. For God to be infinitely wise means for him to hit this target is the work of a moment. For God to pick that coin out of the pile without looking, there it is, is just a trivial task. And we have the foolishness to question the wisdom of God when it comes to how we raise our children and uh, where we live and how we conduct our work and the relationships we have with each other. And now we're starting to see what it means for God to be infinitely wise. You see, this appreciation of the universe that God has made tells us something about the majestic, stupendous glory of this world, which is not even, can't hold a candle to the glory of the God who made it. God's wisdom would have to be infinitely greater than this to sustain this world. That is a choice that we're left with. We can abandon the problems that we're faced with and just close our eyes and become materialists. Or we can acknowledge that we worship this God and we can then start to worship this God. Not to worship the puny God of our imagination, who's 
word, we have the temerity to question when it conflicts with our cherished assumptions. This is the wisdom of the God whom we worship. This then takes us, of course, to the question that we're going to be thinking about next. This God places ethical demands upon us, moral demands upon us. And so Christians, no less than anybody else, are faced with ethical dilemmas, ethical challenges, the challenge of repentance, which as all of us know is more difficult to, say, more difficult to do than to say. And we're going to explore next after the break uh, how, as Christians, we can contribute to the debate about where ethics comes from, what morality is, because we will find that there, as here, the atheist, materialist world has really very little constructive to say. Let's have a break and then come back on. If you enjoyed this talk, be sure to check out the full series, Science and Christianity, with Dr. Steve Jeffrey, now available on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm. 